0: for you and do just what you choose to do and i will be again
1: tonight, hi and welcome to Gonzorilla. this is a podcast about music movies comedy and all forms of excessive consumption my name is brian bentley And I want to thank you guys for joining us today. The song you just heard was Alone Again Or. We're going to be talking about the band that wrote that song and especially the 1960s and the L.A. rock music scene. It was kind of like a giant door that opened to a new world of musical and sensory experience. Like every night, if you were lucky enough to be on the strip, your mind would be blown by the quality of new music invariably in any rock documentary, the three LA names you're going to hear are the birds, the Buffalo Springfield and the doors. But at the same time, the birds were taking flight. And before really the Springfield and the doors, there was an LA band that commanded the stage and they had the ultimate party scene at clubs like Beatolito and the whiskey a go-go. The band was called love and their name said it all, a universal all encompassing appeal that touched on so many different varieties of music. So here we are 55 years later, and we're lucky enough to have a guest who was there from the first note, and he's still going strong. He was responsible for providing some amazing voiceover narrative for the Emmy Award-winning Laurel Canyon documentary that is, in my mind, the very best movie ever made on that scene. Would you please welcome the former lead guitarist of Love and a rock and roll original, Johnny Eccles.
0: Good evening, Brian. How are you?
1: How are are you, man?
0: I'm doing just great, man. How are you? I'm doing
1: fine, and I want to thank you so much for being here today. There's a lot of ground to cover, but before we discuss the history and like the backstories of this great band, I wanted to ask you about Laurel Canyon. You were one of the principal narrators, uh, along with photographer Henry Diltz. How did you get involved in this project?
0: Uh, Jeff Pollock gave me a call and asked if I would be interested in doing this. He knew that I was a little reticent because uh, I had done a couple of these before and they didn't turn out the way I wanted. So he assured me beforehand that they were going to let the people who were involved tell the story the way they lived it. And so uh, that's exactly what they did. And it turned out well.
1: You know, the funny thing is the movie was released in a pretty crowded market. There was another movie about Laurel Canyon uh, the one where Jacob Dylan mixes interviews with onstage performance. So they were two really, to me, differently made movies. People might have got them confused.
0: Yeah, I think they did. As a matter of fact, I was asked uh, initially to see that they talked to me about Jacob's project, Jacob Dylan's project, but they gave me very little information. They just said, hey, you're interested in doing uh, a thing with Jacob Dylan about uh, Laurel Canyon. But that's all they they told me. So, um, you know, I think Jacob's project, it was fine, but it was more inclined toward um, selling Jacob's album and his (laughs) perspective than reality.
1: I don't know about other people, but when I watch these rock documentaries, I always get the feeling that almost every word is scripted by a a writer or director and that the, the guests are just reciting lines. But I didn't feel like that with your movie whatsoever. Laurel Canyon was really unique in that perspective. It was just an amazing job. And I was so happy that they gave you guys the due that you that you deserved because there's been several documentaries out where uh, the band Love hasn't really been mentioned in the 60s scene to the extent that you guys were in uh, Allison's film. Allison mm-hmm. Elwood, she's the director. You're involved right now, I believe, in narrating on another project uh, that's coming out called Where the Action Was?
0: Yes, correct, yeah. We uh, had done several of those. This was Dick Clark's thing. And I believe um, we will tell the story from the perspective of the artist and that show, and I believe American Bandstand is also involved in it, but it was um, a, a TV show called Where the Action Is, and Uh, Paul Revere and the Raiders, I believe they were the house band on this set, and they would bring uh, musicians in, and we would actually play the music rather than doing uh, lip syncs and things we actually played.
1: Is that coming out on any platform that we can look forward to?
0: Yes, I believe it will be on either Netflix or Epics. I'm not sure if they've worked out which um, medium they will use, but on one of the the larger streaming services.
1: And and that's that's nearing release, or is that still in production?
0: I I think it's still in production. Now uh, we've all done our parts, and we've done the narration, and they've gotten all together.
1: You know, I wanted to start back kind of at the beginning, and I know you've probably answered you know these questions before, but do you remember when you were a kid the first time that? you decided or that you knew you really wanted to pursue music?
0: Yes, I do. I can tell you. I was in elementary school, I think, uh, gosh, second or third grade. And we were having show and tell at school. And there was a kid, his name was Danny, and he had to go to the nurse's office. And he had brought the Harmony Sovereign guitar as his part of show and tell. And he asked me to hold his guitar for him and take care of it. And I said, of course. And so he handed it to me and I strummed it and just the vibrations of the strings kind of, you know, it just tickled my soul. And it it was just a love affair that began and and that's still going on to this day. I just fell in love with the sound, the feel, the whole uh, aspect of of the guitar was just, you know, it was all encompassing. And and, uh, so uh, it was magic. And so I, were you self-taught? Well, um, part of my um, Adolf Jacobs um, was with uh, the Coasters. And uh, he was a neighbor and he had seen me going to school lessons. I was taking lessons at uh, one of the local music schools. And he saw the guitar that I had and he said, oh, man, this is a piece of crap. You can't <laughs> use this. So he had a Vega kind of jazz guitar it's uh, an acoustic um, arch top guitar and he said this is what you need and so he just gave it to me and started giving me lessons and so um, so he was one of my first teachers and then uh, Lorendo Alameda, and uh, gosh um, a little with Barney Kessel so I'm, I'm not self-taught.
1: When you were growing up if you can name the three major musical influences that were driving your love of music, who would they be?
0: Well, that's, well, Johnny Guitar Watson was one. I just thought he was a fantastic musician and showman. Kenny Burrell was another one that was just, I loved his playing, his style. He's just so smooth. And Barney Kessel, one of my teachers. I loved Barney. He was just a jazz musician. He was a musician's musician. You know, He just... He could read and score and arrange, but he was also a very soulful ad-lib jazz musician. And I just loved listening to him. And um, so he definitely was a major influence.
1: You came from basically a jazz and a blues background before you got into rock?
0: Correct, yes. yes. That's what I would consider myself still. I would consider myself more inclined towards jazz and blues, even though um, I'm mostly known for rock, but That's where my heart is in in jazz and blues.
1: You and Arthur Lee, the lyrical mastermind and the the band leader of Love, you guys were both born in Memphis and were childhood friends, and then your families both moved to L.A.?
0: Correct, yeah. Actually, our families go back to before our parents were even born. You know, so we're going back generations, yeah. And um, so Arthur lived uh, a few doors down from me in Memphis, but, you know, he was like three years older than me, so... You know, when you're a kid, that's that's major. Yeah, that's and huge. So yeah. He was more like my big brother, and um, they moved to Los Angeles, and probably a few months later, my family moved, and just this is serendipity. We wound up living a couple doors down from each other. Without it wasn't planned. It just worked out that way. So, you know, Arthur's been in my life. You know, he's always. You know, I never knew a time in life. That he wasn't there.
1: And then you went to Dorsey High School in L.A., is that correct?
0: Correct, yes.
1: I was actually born and raised in L.A., and my mom was a substitute teacher for the L.A. Unified school system. And one of uh, her regular stops was substitute teaching English at Dorsey. And Uh I, I don't know if this was the same time, but it would have been fairly close. Yeah. So Arthur was not really a musician at this time he's more of a he was an accomplished jock in high school
0: correct yeah Arthur was on the basketball team and he was really really good and he uh, was thinking about or hoping to be um, chosen by one of the colleges to get a scholarship and play um, college basketball really really good and you know I'd known him as I said my whole life and I'd would listen to his poetry because he was a a poet or rapper, I guess, before there were rappers, it wasn't such a thing. He was just kind of a street poet, you know, and an improvisational um, speaker. And so he would just spit these rhymes out of these stories and he would tell them, and that would be, you know, something that he did often. And um, I was, you know, deeply involved with music and, Um, Little Richard had become a friend because my uncle uh, managed a club called the California Club, and it was on what they call the Chitlin Circuit. And all of the jazz musicians or blues musicians um, would come into town and they would play there. And when I got to be about 14, 15, um, Billy Preston was a high school and uh, junior high school friend, and we formed a group. And it was called Billy Preston and the Soul Brothers. And wow. We played and we ended up being um, the house band at the California Club. And that's where we met Jimi Hendrix. So Jimmy James at the time was part of that. And Henry Vestine of Canned um, Heat was also a friend. And we put together this house band and we played behind everybody And uh, this was um, kind of the precursor, I guess you'd call it, um, to love. We were ended up being, um, Billy moved on, but um, John Fleckenstein and Don Conker, who were members of that house band, moved over to what um, became love.
1: This whole thing about Little Richard, and this is a great story, you actually were lucky enough to have Little Richard take you on tour in England in 63 and 64, where you met the Beatles. Jimmy was on that tour as well. Can you talk about just what that must have been like for a kid of your age doing that?
0: That was just fantastic. Uh, At that time, Jimmy was more um, his um, butler, his man Friday, and also guitar player in the group, and as was Billy Preston. And so we played behind a little Richard. And when we get to Liverpool, we meet these guys they were basically like oh gosh I, I don't want to use a pejorative but they were like little sycophants i mean they just were so adoring of richard you're talking, about the, beatles, right? you're talking yeah, about
1: the beatles right you're talking about the beatles yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: but at, at the time you know uh, i don't think i even um, cared enough to even remember their name you know it was just <laughs> these guys and they they followed richard around like little puppies And uh, I had to go come back to Los Angeles because there was a death in the family. So I didn't stay on the tour. But um, so when I came back, uh, I began playing again. And I saw, oh, gosh, about two, three months later, um, Billy came back. And we were playing at a club uh, called The Night Life in Los Angeles. And a messenger came there and we'd never even seen a messenger comes there and he wants to see Billy and he has these tickets and they were from Brian Epstein. Brian, you know, had given these passes to the Hollywood bowl. And, you know, we were wondering, wow, who was that? And she he said, he was the guy that managed those dudes that we saw in, in uh, England and they turned out to be the Beatles. So we hadn't connected. That the guys that we knew in Liverpool were the same guys that were now this humongous, you know, force of nature called the Beatles. And so we were invited to come down to the Hollywood Bowl and they gave us the passes and we got to go backstage and all of that. All of these screaming girls, and it was just mind-blowing because we did not expect and had no way of of even beginning to understand the phenomena that was you know the Beatles so um it it just it was a major influence when we looked at that and this is what I'm gonna do you know because we saw with these you know they could have any girl that they wanted you know we're still teenage boys and you know that was just something that we we just thought was fantastic so yeah we um serendipity I guess again that word comes up a lot but we just were in the right place at the right time and and uh were exposed to that and you know, right at the, the beginning. Was that by any chance
1: the sixty-five Hollywood Bowl show that you guys were yes. backstage? Yes. I'm gonna I'm gonna say something here and I don't know if anybody believes me who are friends listening to this, but I was at that show myself. Oh really? <laughs> yes. I well. was um I was a very little kid and my mother took us down and uh we uh got box seats because she was very generous. She, she spent a lot of money on her kids if she could if she had it and I will never forget the the girls jumping into the pool trying to get at uh, John and Paul and yeah. I, yes <laughs> and that I was re-
0: incredible <laughs> <isn't it? laughs>
1: and, and I remember jelly beans being thrown like yellow jelly beans all over yeah. the ground. but what I remember the most was I couldn't hear I couldn't hear the PA at all because of the screams at some points. The screens were so loud. Yeah, you know, I was a little kid with my hands over my ears and, and like, but everything it, it the, the, the equipment really hadn't caught up yet with the with the noise right that, that would That's come from that. Yeah,
0: yeah, it was just amazing. We just weren't ready for that. And um, you know, as I said, that was just a, a turning point I think for us musically because then you know we had been basically a cover band, you know, and now we uh, could see that people were they, they did their own thing and their own music and had their own style of dress and all of that so they were a major influence on us it was a turning point actually
1: regarding Jimi hendrix the path that he took there were a couple of questions i had for you the first one was you've been quoted as saying that you saw him And he, he was okay as Jimmy James. And then you saw him a couple of years later and you were just like, what the, you know, he, he had really made some major progressions.
0: Absolutely. It was unbelievable. The difference. I mean, before when I knew him, he was an okay, just a workman like guitar player, a club guitar player. And you'd see them just about at any club you go to. There's just a guy that plays the guitar and he's okay, but he's not a phenomenal. And, um, we, Arthur and me, went by the Whiskey a Go Go to see Jimi Hendrix. Now, again, I hadn't put Jimi Hendrix together with the guy that I knew back, you know, at the California Club named Jimmy James. And uh, when we went in and we were waiting and talking, and all of a sudden he comes up and stands on stage, and Arthur says, "Hey, man, isn't that that guy from the Gallons?" "Wow, yeah, it is." And so uh, when he started playing, you know, our mouths were just open. This guy goes from being, you know, a so-so musician to, you know, just a godlike character. I mean, this guy was fantastic. And, you know, it was just hard to figure out how he could go from there to where he wound up in the space of less than a couple of years. So after they did the show, he invited us up to the dressing room and we talked and chatted and stuff. And so I jokingly asked him, man, did you uh you make a trip down to the crossroads? And you know, it was funny and we laughed. He said, No, man, I make a daily trip to the woodshed. And that's basically what he's, you know, you, whenever you saw Jimmy, even if you're just sitting down chatting with him or whatever, like we're talking now, he would have a guitar in his hand. He always had a guitar and um uh, it just uh, it became a part of him, and you know his. It shows practice does definitely make perfect, and it definitely did for him.
1: Arthur wrote and produced a single called "My Diary" um, in '64, and Jimmy Jimmy was on that song.
0: Yes, he was. He uh, I had another gig and couldn't play on that, so uh, he remembered we remembered the guy from the California club, and he asked him to come down. And Jimmy of course came down because at that time he was broke. And so he was gonna get paid a session fee for coming down uh, by Billy Reeves, the owner of Revis record. And um, this lady Rosalie Brooks, she uh, did the vocals on it. She did a, a really nice job on the vocals. And uh, yeah, this was a song Arthur wrote about um, his girlfriend. This girlfriend, her name was Anita. And she appears throughout our time as a group. There are so many songs that we did that are directly attributed to her. Seven and Seven Is, which you mentioned earlier, that was uh, about her. And a a song called A Message to Pretty, that was about her. And uh, Stephanie Knows Who, she's in that. And the castle, again, it's talking about her, so. There's so many songs that we did that are relating to this childhood sweetheart of Arthur's.
1: Isn't that weird how women will affect you as a kid and like you, you, you can hang on to that and utilize it for musical inspiration. And it plays such a huge role for years and years. Yeah. Okay. So you were in Hollywood you were, I, I believe you were the lags at this time. And then you became the grassroots and you had a residency at the uh, brave new world. Correct. And I, I have to ask you about the night, the Lou Adler incident and also the Lou Adler's uh, Bob Dylan single incident. Can you, can you elaborate some on that?
0: Okay. We were playing Brian McLean had joined us by then. And Brian had been the roadie for the birds and he joined us and um, we were on break and this guy who had been drinking comes up to us and he's just effusive in his praise. Oh, you guys are great. And he introduces himself and, you know, neither of us knew who he was, but uh, he was with this young lady and he's trying to impress her, it seems, with who he was. And he's telling us he's going to make us into the next peoples and that we're going to just be huge superstars and just effusive in his praise. So this goes on for a while, and uh, we noticed that it's time for us to go back on stage because we were just on a break. And Brian basically cut him off and says, man, you know, why don't you speak to our manager because we've got to go back and play. Now, under normal circumstances, that would have been fine. Nobody, He would have said, cool, can I, you have a card or something. But instead, he having uh, been inebriated at the point. He just took it the wrong way and just went off. And says, How dare you insult me like this? Don't you know who I am? And then he says something that made us laugh. You'll never work in this town again. And so Brian and I, of course, uh, it was just an absurd statement. So we basically laughed in his face and went back inside to play. And oh, maybe two months later, one of the regulars at the club said, Oh, I just heard your new record and it's so cool. New record? She didn't know the name of it. She said, that's called Mr. Jones. And I said, well, we don't have a record. She says, Yes, you do. It's the grassroots. You know, we were the grassroots. And they put out a record. And um, we finally convinced her that it wasn't us. And that we went down to a place called Wallach's Music City in Hollywood. And they the record store there had every record in existence, basically. And we found the record and you would go into these little booths and you could preview the record before you bought it. Or just as kids, you would just sit in the little booths and listen to music all day until they kicked us out. But anyway, we went in and heard the song and it was I think Ballad of Thin Men by Bob Dylan. And it was a group called The Grassroots. And it was produced by Lou Adler. And then remember Lou Adler that's the guy and then you know it all came together and what ended up happening was Lou Adler decided that, that the grassroots was a cool interesting name but he also knew that we had a huge following in Hollywood and Wallach's Music City this is before computers they were one of the record stores that, uh, that they would check out the different stores to find out our records to and then they would make up the charts based on that. And this record was just selling like hotcakes because the people still didn't know it wasn't us. So uh, they went and bought it. And, of course, by the time they find out that it's somebody else, it's too late. They've already bought it. So the record moved up the charts based on that. And um, we had a what's called a poor man's copyright, where you uh, send yourself a registered letter and it's sealed and you put all the information in the letter. And if you go to court, the judge unseals it. And if you have a prior claim, usually it'll prevail. But we had spoken to an attorney and they said, this guy is really a big shot in the music business, the guy that you insulted. So um, it would be, probably it would behoove you to just get a new name because Fighting him in court is going to cost you a lot of money and you're going to have a lot of people upset with you and um, you could end up destroying your careers before it even starts. So, uh, What year was this? This would have been 1965. So
1: Bob didn't want to put it out as Bob Dylan? I'm kind of confused. No, 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 that was the grassroots.
0: Bob Dylan wrote the song. They just used one of Bob Dylan's songs. No, these were studio musicians that, he got together up in San Francisco okay. and uh, he just gave them the name, the grassroots, because he knew immediately they would sell a lot of records. I got it. it. I got
1: it. Yeah. I was trying to figure out because so it was a cover of Ballad of a Thin Man. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So at this time you were getting some, uh, some interesting people, you know, checking you out. And I think that's the greatest compliment that you can give a, a young band is when well-known well bands come and check you out. So the Rolling Stones would come down and, and see you guys from time to time?
0: Yeah, that's when we became by then we had moved over to a place called Lido's, and we had changed our name to Love then. And yeah, the Rolling Stones would come down, the birds would often see us. Uh, the Led Zeppelin before they became Led Zeppelin used to come in and see us. Oh gosh, the Doors of course would hang out with because we were friends with the Doors and and later, uh, we'll speak about this later. We actually got them their record deal. But so yeah, we yeah. and uh see we were uh, Cosmos Alley is where Vito Litos was, and it was right behind um a place called Shelley's Manhole. And that was the place where all the jazz musicians of the day would play. So Miles Davis, uh Paul Horn, Coltrane, uh J- Charlie Mingus, anyway, they would play there. And um on their breaks, they would come out in, in the alley behind it and they'd see all of these people. We'd have literary people lined up around the block and they would put speakers outside because the club was so small, it would hold maybe 75 people, but they could put hundreds and hundreds of people outside and they would you know, put these huge voices and the theater speakers in. So there was more action going on outside than inside the club.
1: I think I'm familiar with that street. It's Cosmos Alley. is just like south of Hollywood Boulevard over there. Correct. where like Bordner's and all those places are now.
0: Yes. Yes.
1: So you guys are playing. You're now, now you've come up with the name Love. I hear that David Crosby uh, gave you a little advice on uh, you guys were so enamored of the birds.
0: Yeah. If you listen to our first album, it's, it's very, you know, it's reminiscent. <laughs> we don't actually sound like them, but we're using the kind of the 12 string jangle guitar sound. Yeah. And um, Brian was close with the birds because he used to be their roadie. And so we got to know David and David said, uh, you know, there's already a bird. And if you guys want to make it, you're going to have to do your own thing. And that turned out to be really, really good advice because, you know, as he said, there was already a birds and they were doing a fantastic job <laughs> at being the birds. So, um, you know, that's coming along as, you know, uh, Trying to imitate them really wasn't a way to actually, you know, to make a mark in, in uh, music. So uh, we developed our own style, which we would call eclectic. You know, we played all different kinds of music and and it was fun. It was like we were basically, at, if you listen to music back then on the radio, you would hear Frank Sinatra and then you may hear uh, Howlin' Wolf and then you may hear the Philharmonic orchestra all played on the same radio station you know instead of having these little niche kind of things you know the top 40 or whatever they do now they would have all these different types of music and different genres would be played back to back on local radio stations
1: also on stages like i mean the film would have like uh buffalo springfield taj mahal uh you know, Jimi Hendrix, uh, and just various various genres. Everything wasn't just like segmented and slotted the way it is now.
0: That's, that's, see, that's when the corporate interest and the business people started getting involved. And they decided, well, if this is a hit, then do the same thing again and again right. and again and again. And so that's how music is. And it, it evolved into that. But during that point, music was just open and free and, you know, so many different and diverging, different kinds of, of music would be played and you were exposed to such, you know, talent back then. You know, as I say, you'd listen to, you know, Bert Bachrad and then you'd listen to uh, Muddy Waters or, you know, or the Rolling Stones or someone, all on the same station. And so that's basically what we did. We wanted to be that. So we would play folk music and then we do hard rock and then we do a jazz ten song or maybe a blues fusion. And, you know, it just made it interesting. It it kept us involved because we were always doing something different with each song. So we couldn't be categorized. And that ended up being our kind of our, our mantra, so to speak, as, um, not being able to put us in, in the bag
1: so to speak so, so for all those people who are, are like quarantined and and locked down and at home right now and and maybe uh sending uh music files back and forth to each other describe what laurel canyon which you refer to as oz can you describe what that was like when you would have these bands playing in clubs and people would come back jam at parties all night i mean that must have been just like for a young kid that just must have been like nirvana i mean
0: absolutely it was <laughs> nirvana so next well two doors down from me frank zappa lived right across uh, mark and the turtles um gosh pat and lolly vegas it became red bone they lived a couple doors down so there are just you know the buffalo springfield and, and neil was in the same Area, So on this one street, either Kirkwood or Lookout Mountain in this one little area, just about everybody that you heard on the radio from the Doors, the Birds, Buffalo Springfield, the Eagles later on, or, or the Stone Ponies and Love, and uh, so many different groups all lived basically you know, within um, a few doors of each other. And so we all were friends. And this is so amazing that It just happened like that because it was these really lovely homes, but for some reason the rents were just really, really cheap. Like you could rent a house now that would probably sell for two million dollars, and you could pay maybe sixty-five, seventy dollars (laughs) a month to rent it. Back then, it's just (laughs) incredible. And so, yeah, we had just, you know, we this was outside of Laurel Canyon, but I think it was either Lillian Gish or Claraboe anyway. They owned this place we call it the castle. And it was like a 60, 70-room, humongous mansion. Um, this would have been in the in, um, Las Feliz area near Griffith Park. And it ended up costing us like, I think, $150 or something to live in this magnificent place. And basically, all we had to do was keep it up and then pay the taxes and that ended up costing us each about 150 dollars a month to live in this if you saw this place now (laughs) it just looks like something out of uh, some kind of fairy tale it's just all gilt and marble and this old teak and brazilian rosewood family just a Magnificent
1: place. And- it sounds like the kind of place that you would actually construct if you're doing like a like a hard day's night or something, and all the all the guys would be hooked up in this house. Yeah. And but only that's in L.A. in prime real estate, like a like near Beechwood Canyon or whatever. I mean that that's yeah. uh real quick. I wanted to ask you about Peter Tork's house because I keep hearing <laughs> about how that house brought so many people, the CSNY, Jimi Hendrix and the Monkeys. It, it was just like everybody just be like hanging out there.
0: Yeah, well, he was, you know, kind of the gadfly, so he knew everybody, and so everyone just hung out with him, and it was cool going to his place because, you know, I would rather go to his place and hang out than to have him come to mine because Peter was a nudist, and so he would just take off his clothes, and I, you know, wasn't prepared for that. Going to his house is fine, but not having him sitting on my furniture, you know, but naked, (laughs) and that's... was his thing, but yeah, it was, you know, but, but the thing that I was mentioning earlier, we all just hung out together because we were all put basically by, the universe just put everybody in the same little area on the same street and we got to know each other and just about every local band that was playing at clubs anywhere in Hollywood ended up being signed by a major record company. So you would have heard, you know, as I say, Buffalo Springfield, or The Leaves, or you would have heard The Doors, Iron Butterfly, Love, all you know, playing together or playing on the same street in one of these little clubs. And so the record companies just went through and signed everybody. I don't think that could ever happen again. You know, it's just one moment in time that uh, was just amazing.
1: Trying to put these pieces together as far as the chronological order. And if I go out of line, you know, I, I want to maybe backtrack if possible, but sure, you guys were playing in some clubs. Can you tell us how you met Jack Holtzman, the uh, main man over at Electra Records and how that, how, how all that went
0: down? Well, there's a fella named Herb Cohen. Herb Cohen was the manager of um, Frank Zappa. And we were friends with Zappa, so um, they asked, or Zappa asked, if a friend of Herb's, he was a record company executive from New York, if he could come by and hear us. And I said, of course, he said, well, can you guys get him backstage and all of that? And so, well, of course, we'll give him, you know, you'll be able to come backstage and chat with us. So we were playing at Beat and. Um, The backstage was basically a little storeroom off to the side where everybody would relax after our set. Anyway, um, he came down and he heard us, and he wanted to talk, and we were cramped in this little room, so we decided to go to Cantor's. Cantor's is an all-night deli in Hollywood where all of the rock musicians would hang out, so we went down to Cantor's, and he introduced himself again, told us, You know, that he was involved with Judy Collins and Tim Buckley and um, that he owned uh, Electra and was interested in signing us. So we talked with him for a while and um, I asked him if we could own our publishing because most record labels will not let you do that, especially back then. And he said, of course, you can keep your publishing and own the masters, which we do to this day. And um, so we ended up signing with them. That was and, unprecedented, um, right? I mean, it yes, it was. Wasn't. because, And that was because of little Richard. One of the things that he had told me way back when I was a kid is always own your music. Don't let them take your music from you. Own it. And so we um, established a publishing company called Grassroots Music. And um, we own the masters and the publishing for our songs which now several artists do and Bill Dylan and others, and they can sell their catalogs. But, yeah, um, really. <laughs> so, yeah, that was-
1: so you were the first rock band that Electra signed. Is that right?
0: Correct. Yeah.
1: I want to get into this story that's been told many times, but uh, you were effectively in some respects the agent and probably should have gotten 15% of whatever the contract was, but you were like very instrumental in getting the doors signed to Electra can you talk about your relationship with Jim Morrison, which I find interesting because anybody who knew Jim Morrison, I'd always like to you know hear some Jim Morrison stories, but how did that all work about? Because everyone was sort of in the scene at the same time and, and they were looking for a record deal, but people, they were kind of uneven live. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, Jim was a very close friend of ours and, um, he was always hanging out. He was just there. And so we knew the doors from all of the clubs and, and just living in the area. And, but Jim had a problem with drink. He was, I'll put it you know, kindly, he was you know, an alcoholic. When he wasn't drinking, he was the sweetest, nicest guy. But as soon as he started drinking, which was every day, he would just become this abusive, really hard to be around character. So, when he kept asking us to hook him up with our record company, and nobody really wanted to vouch for him because (laughs) if you hooked him up with the record company, they're going to kind of, you're kind of responsible for the stuff that he does. And so, a couple of months go by, and people at MCA Records, which at the time was a humongous company, and they had this clout that Electra just did not have and they offered us which at the time would have been probably one of the largest signing bonuses of any group I mean it would have been more than the Beatles and stones and all of these people combined it would have been fifty thousand dollars which at the time as I said was just a humongous sum to sign the group so they offered us that to leave Electra and sign with them and Arthur and I came up with the brother, well me actually, but um, I'll include him kind of ameliorated. Um, we came up with this brilliant idea that if we hooked a lecture up with the doors, they would uh, have a group in the game and they would let us go. They would allow MCA to buy our contract out. So we invited Jack to come down to the whiskey and hear the doors. And he came all the way from New York and he's there waiting to hear this fantastic group that we've been bragging about. And Jim is drunk, really, really drunk. And they were miserable. The group sounded horrible. When the set was over, Jack just looked at us and, you know, he, we could see that he was really, really ticked off. He said, you bring me all the way out here for this. And, you know, basically, how dare you? And so you know, we went down several notches in his eye. But um, we managed to talk him into coming back again. And he came back again. But this time, Jim was sober. I, I believe Iron Butterfly were on the bill with him. So, you know, you have this kind of rivalry going. So Jim put on a rock clinic. You know, he was just great. And did all of the Light like, My Fire and The End and all of these songs. And Jack saw What we saw that the Doors, you know, were going to be something because they just had this thing with Jim, you know, out front and and this kind of sullen, moody, really super handsome guy. And all the girls just loved him. And, you know, we just knew that anybody could see that. He seemed
1: to me to be a guy that wasn't particularly trying to impress an audience. He wasn't he wasn't out there trying to say, hey, like me. He was up there just doing his thing. I think that self-confidence and that charisma, good looking dude on top of it. But I mean, you put all that together. I just thought it was funny that he was in a band with um, three, three musicians who were into transcendental meditation. And he was such a, wasn't he just such a different person? I mean, literally he'd be out walking on a hotel ledge while they'd be doing meditation.
0: Well, yeah, he was, as I say, Jim was different. He was a strange human being, but he he was a, really kind of had a magnetic personality. You either liked him when you saw him when he wasn't drinking, which was rare, or you hated his guts. But he was also a poet, just like Arthur. He wasn't much of a musician, but he was you know a fantastic wordsmith, and he could put words together in such a way that you know he painted a picture. And, and you know Arthur did this, as I mentioned, and so did Jim and. They just had this ability to to do that, you know, to paint a picture with words. And so we knew that that he and the Doors, even though the Doors didn't have a bass player when they played live, so they didn't have the full impact that a rock and roll group with the bass and the driving drums would have, but they had a different sort of, you know, very tight, well-rehearsed sound. And contrary to what it appears Jim was very much into wanting to be because at the time love was the biggest group in Hollywood, even with the birds and all of the other people we could still uh, draw them you know by orders of magnitude. we just were you know humongous at that time, and he wanted to be like us that was his dream is to be love so he uh, as I mentioned asked and asked and asked and when we finally got it looked up then he just changed you know uh, he became this kind of uh, haughty character he he was like a character out of a Hemingway novel or or something (laughs) he was you know not the same guy that we had known for all of these years all of a sudden once success and stardom and fame started to come his way he did his best to push it away you know and and instead of you know the the Greek God Adonis look that the girls loved. He became overweight and with a big Santa Claus beard. It seems like he was trying his best to destroy that which he had created, which is in itself strange. It's like bipolar.
1: I think sometimes the expectations and the fame get to certain artists and they kind of do about face to try to, uh, you know, walk away from that. I mean, it's, you can see it in, in some artists in present day, like for instance, Jack White or the black keys or some other band like Beck, for instance, they they become super popular. And then they deliberately put out records that are less commercial just in a way to just sort of get that pressure off because Jim was really in a bubble. I mean, I've studied the, the guy's story a lot and I, I find it interesting that, Electra had the two best. So by this point, the doors are signed, right? So you guys are both. So Electra's got the two baddest ass bands in LA on the label. Was there competition between you guys and the doors once that happened?
0: Well, it was, you know, because of the fact that love was so huge in Hollywood, we were in the bubble. You know, it was like, it was night and day the difference between us and the group just right under a seat be it um, the Buffalo Springfield, the Doors, Iron Butterfly, birds, any of these people loved was just notches above them. So we didn't have that any competition. And so as far as the Doors were concerned, since we hooked them up, the only kind of, uh, I guess, the the way we kind of felt uh, betrayed, I guess, was because now all of the money that had been spent promoting love and, and getting together for tours and all of that all of a sudden went to the Doors because um, the Doors had taken off and uh, as I mentioned before the young girls were they were just driven by that and all of these little girls would go out and buy the Doors records so they immediately shot to number one and the Doors eclipsed love as far as uh, on the on lecture because They were selling so many more records than we were. And after a point, um, outside of Hollywood, they started making noises. Now, as I said, we were humongous here in in L.A. and Hollywood. But when you got outside of this area, because we were a mixed race group, which, you know, is a whole other story. But we couldn't play in most of this country, like in places in the South they would book us because when they saw, you know, either they didn't see the album or when they saw the album, they couldn't tell that we were a mixed race group until they saw us.
1: That was the next question I was going to ask you because Arthur's voice sounds crystal clear and pop. Did sometimes people freak out who hadn't seen
0: you before when they saw you live, they thought you guys were a white band? Yes, they did. And most of the promoters did. And many times, as I said, we'd be booked for a gig and they find out and then it would be canceled or they would expect that we would play in front of a segregated audience, which, you know, we would have no part of that nonsense. And so uh, we lost so many gigs and the record company is of a mind that you need to go out on tour and promote these records because the more places you go, the more places are going to buy these albums. And So we were kind of stuck. We could play in in Hollywood and, and, uh, all of California, we were cool, and many other places like uh, up in Oregon or Washington State, and uh, the East Coast, we could play. But every place in between, with the exception of Texas, that was the one place that we could huh. play in the South. Other than that, we, all of these places, we couldn't play. And so the Doors could, of course, and they went out and, and just you know, did their thing. And so, of course, they're making way, way, way more money for, for the record company. And so, record company just kind of uh, flipped off of us and switched onto them. But so, record
1: companies tend to do that. They tend to, yeah, of course, as soon as the they're money starts, yeah, as soon as the money starts going one direction and the momentum, it's. Uh, were, were you invited? Uh, was Love invited to play at uh, Monterey Pop because the doors yes, did we, not?
0: We didn't play because they didn't offer us. Enough money to play and We had been, you know, playing uh, these freebies or, or uh, gigs that shouldn't have, didn't pay as much as they should have. You know, we're we're doing things to, uh, um, that weren't necessarily helpful to us, and we just thought this isn't going to work. He's not offering us enough money, and then the fact that he had Adler to deal
1: with had, Lou Adler. yeah. Yeah, I think Adler. he did
0: that. He purposely lowballed us because we should have been. Offered a much much larger amount of money, and I think he did that on purpose because I don't think he really wanted us there. And the
1: Doors okay. weren't there either, right? The Doors no, had a they, number one album because
0: that's... when we weren't uh, invited, we were invited, but you know, as I said, we were insulted, and so uh, they went along with us and decided, yeah, we're not going to play either.
1: Oh, so, really? It was a, yeah. it was like a thing where they were backing they were like had your back, they were backing you. Up oh and... yeah,
0: they always had our backs. I mean, the, yeah. the Doors were in our corner all the way.
1: Cause I was wondering if it was cause you guys were both on Electra. I couldn't figure out, is this a coincidence? You know, I talked to Al Cooper a few months ago and he was the stage manager or one of the stage managers there. And he was saying that, uh, he wasn't really talking smack about Lou Adler, but it, you know, it was, there was a lot of politics going on. And,
0: uh, yeah, it was, <laughs> you know, there was a lot of things that were, were happening with him and, and, uh, we just could not deal with that. So we didn't, didn't play, but nobody knew what that was going to turn into. I mean, it's just another gig up North. And, and so, uh, you know, at the time, well, even afterwards it didn't turn into what it turned into later until years and years later, it became the thing because it basically catapulted Jimi Hendrix into the, you know, the stratosphere. And, uh, so if were it not for him being there, him and Janis Joplin, I doubt if if people would. Okay, Carlos Santana too, also, but it wouldn't have been the, the thing that it was without Jimmy, and then setting his guitar on fire and, and that thing.
1: In the Who did it, the Who did a great job at that show yes, too. Yes, they did. I think a lot of it had to do with the movie that D.A. Pennebreaker made, also the movie that they made on Woodstock. Don't you think that that once you get that on film and that gets run over and over again, that really helps to cement a legacy, so to speak?
0: Absolutely. that's Absolutely. That's correct. But, you know, I'm speaking of at the time, it just, you know, we didn't think of it as this major mistake. We said, ah, another gig we didn't play. It wasn't until later that, you know, We realized, you know, what could have been had we done so. But uh, I'm still of a mind that that probably wasn't necessarily the best place for us because we needed a more intimate venue. And we also needed to play much longer to kind of get the crowd into us. Did you
1: have any trouble recreating? I know your early, your first two records were pretty garagey, but did you have any trouble recreating some of the studio stuff live? Was that ever a challenge?
0: Now, now we can actually. When you go to our gigs, go online and listen to some yeah. of our stuff. Like last year, we played. The last one we played was at the Echo here in Hollywood. Yeah. Or uh-huh. the cat. Listen to those, and you hear the strings and horns, except for the minor difference in the voice because you're not hearing Arthur's voice, but you're hearing mine. And my voice is a lot of times we double, like on seven seven is in my little red book. We are doubling. So if you listen to that and close your eyes, you would know that you were not listening to a very high quality version of the record I mean, Yeah oh, I'm sure I'm that sure. good you
1: know. I-, I wanted to talk a little bit about the, the process of recording when you were going into the studio and sort of since Arthur wasn't uh, necessarily a musician by nature, how did the arrangements and the work a breakdown were, were you doing were you doing a lot of the a lot of the musicality in the studio
0: yes actually brian and i both did this the way we would put things together sort of like elton john and bernie Hoff, the way they would do you know he top and send um elton john the words and elton would put the music to it well we do it the opposite arthur was always singing and always writing songs and so we'd hear him singing these songs all of the time. I and mean, that was just something he did, just every time he saw him, he's singing a new song. And, and uh, so we would get together and Arthur would sing the melodies and Brian and I would play different chords and we would experiment and Kenny too, to some extent, but it was mostly Brian and me. And we would play chords and Arthur would say, I like that, that's cool. And that would be part of the song. Once he said he liked something, it became part of this song and we always had to play that. So, you know, it was trial and error over a period of months. We would play something and he'd like it or he didn't like it. He'd, you know, say, well, maybe if you did this or that, you know, so he's adding, even though he didn't have the musical ability or the knowledge to tell us what he was hearing. He could recognize it once he heard it. And once he heard it, as I say, it was part of the song. and so by trial and error and experimenting here and experimenting there. We put the music together to art his words
1: and his lyrics, his lyrics were metered very kind of unusually there, there would be, it wasn't like you were writing to a Stones or a Beatles song. So was it difficult to get the music to wrap around and fit to the um, sort of Byzantine, you know, elaborate structure of his lyrics?
0: Actually. Now, if you listen to Forever Changes, Everything, not everything, but most of this is based around an F7 chord form. Hmm. So we're playing that basic form, and then we're sliding down, and we're going to A in an F7 form. So everything sounds familiar. Go back and listen to the album, and you'll see where the, the certain chord structures repeat themselves so many times. And that's just, you know, the way... When you're hearing something and you're hearing words and and you don't have you're not wedded to that. You know, it's not something that came from your imagination. It came from someone else's. And so a lot of times you will sort of find yourself doing a formulaic thing. We're doing, as I mentioned, the f seven form. And yeah. so we ended up doing that so much that it sounds familiar because once you hear one song, you can kind of relate it to the next song and relate it to the next. Right. Right. And so that's how that's what's put together.
1: I I want to talk about the song seven and seven is simply because it was one of those songs that immediately you could put in any sort of classic garage rock lineup next to the seeds or the standells or anything. It was just a mind-blowingly aggressive song. The, the vocals and the words were almost spit in your face. The, the guitar that, that you played on that was just, I mean, it was unbelievable. I heard there were some issues with the drums and
0: everything. Was that a hard song in the studio to, to finish? Oh, it was. We probably did well over 100 takes of that song because I had an idea in mind that to, to do kind of, it started out kind of a surf idea, you know, with the vibrato. And then Kenny Forsey and I had, we had a contract with Thomas Organ or Vox and they had sent us a bass pedal. Now there had never been before that a pedal for a bass. This was a distortion pedal, but what it was was a volume booster. And we started working on this at home and working on different songs. And I'm doing this, this thing with the vibrato and the trim oil, and he's got this bass effect And we basically worked that out before we even got together with Arthur to put it to a song. We had worked out the sound before there was a song. Hmm. And Arthur had had this song that I mentioned before that had to do with um, Anita. Uh, Seven and Seven Is, meaning they're both born on March the 7th. And so um, he's talking about his relationship with her. And also, it's kind of autobiographical in that um, he's in the corner, his mind in an ice cream cone. Well, his mother had gotten this Merlin, you know, one of these conical hats that uh, I think Mickey Mouse wore that at Disneyland. <laughs> and whenever he, she would punish him as a kid, she put him in the corner and make him wear that little hat. That was basically a dunce cap. And so that was, he's talking about that and his relationship with the girl wanting to be a man so he could be away from his parents and and, uh, get together with Anita, or Pretty, as he called her. So we took that song, which was kind of almost a Dylan-esque song, and put it together with the raucous, loud guitar and this bass that had a really volume doubling effect so it had feedback on the bass that was unheard of back at the time. This was before level. You know, you didn't have that kind of thing. And so we put that together and we had decided because of the fact that this was such an integral part of what we were trying to do was the sound. The sound was everything, in other words. So the drummer had to keep up with basically, this is a click track before there are click tracks. Before. Right. The vibrato is at a specific tempo, and he has to stay within that tempo because if he changes even just a millisecond, then everything is thrown off and he's lost, and we have to start all over. So that's why, as I said, we did well over 100 takes. Jack Holtzman and Bruce Bodning, the engineer and producer, they were upset telling us, "Listen." play it straight and then we'll add the vibrato and
1: No, that's... no, no, no.
0: <laughs> no, that wasn't the song. You know yeah. the song was the sound and so we had to get that sound on tape and that's why it took so long. But finally after all of those takes he was able to do it all the way through without a mistake and that's what you hear. And the second part of it where after the explosion there's that was a song that I had written called Lonely Guitar. Yeah, and we put that together with um the other part of seven and seven is and that's how we ended up with the song that was so different for the times. I mean, this song was just so in your face and loud and boisterous, and when you heard us because we did that every night after it became a hit, every time we played, that was the song we closed with. And it, does the
1: tempo accelerate at all toward the end, or is that It's just uh, the drummers. It seems almost like the song kind of starts off fast and just like goes faster and faster and faster and faster.
0: Yes. And what's happening is we're finally looking at the drummer because before we were were like, we're in this large studio at Sunset Sound and our amplifiers are turned toward the wall because they need to be really loud, but we don't want them bleeding into the other mic, into the vocal, because we did this live. You know the vocal and the everything is live is we we're playing on a two track machine, so I mean we couldn't do any overdubs at that point yeah no so, there's
1: no there's no coming back and dropping something in or uh, no, nope. you nope. had
0: to do it all the way through, right or start over again, and so finally, toward the end, yeah, it's speeding up, and I can see him speeding up, and so we just instead of letting it drift until we had to start over again, we just sped up a little bit with him and so we kept it on meter and that in itself was amazing that we both Kenny and I were able to you know and that's weird that you could hear that but yeah we're slightly speeding it up before it gets to the point where it's frantic and you know it's like an orgasm with the explosion and then you're into the afterglow with the slowness and you know you're laying back smoking a cigarette. He must
1: have been sweating bullets, your drummer, oh, by the yeah. end of that session.
0: Poor kid, because Arthur is yelling at him, man, you better not mess this up again, and, or you're going to get fired. And so he's worried about getting fired, and, and you know, everybody is, because he's the only one that's causing us to do these tapes, and my fingers are starting oh, man. to bleed, you know, because playing <laughs> the same thing over and over and over kind of gets to you. Anyway, it worked out.
1: You've been listening to Gonzarilla, the podcast about music, movies, comedy, and all forms of obsessive consumption. My name is Brian Bentley, and I hope you guys will stay tuned for part two of our interview with Johnny Eccles from the classic eclectic rock 60s band Love. We're going to go step by step through the amazing recording processes involved with the making of Love's classic album, Forever Changes. And why it's earned the title of the greatest rock album of all time in the British rock press. We'll explore what really happened to Love, the ill timed moves and self destructive forces that brought the band to such an early end. In the meantime, here's that proto punk nugget we were just talking about Love's Seven and Seven Is, again featuring the extraordinary Johnny Eccles on guitar. See you in part two.
0: i